Hello and welcome to another episode of Sexual Confidence on Tap with Shannon Etheridge and friends. And today I have a relatively new friend. Now we've spent a lot of time online uh, with me being on his podcast a couple of times, but I'm delighted to finally get him on mine today because he is a wealth of knowledge and inspiration and passion. And so would you please welcome with me, Cynthia Sam. And Cynthia, where do you live? I don't even know. Yeah, yeah. Okay, well, for starters, thanks for having me. And you yeah. not only spoke on my podcast, you spoke to my clients and they loved you. I still get comments, questions about your talk. So uh, yeah. for me to return the favor is a total honor. Um, it depends on the time of the year as far as my answer to your question goes. So my wife and I are based out of a city called St. Catharines. Uh, which is about an hour from Toronto and 20 minutes from Niagara Falls. Okay, so, we're on the Canadian so you're side. Canadian. I am Canadian. I know. I never knew that. <laughs> yeah, I've masked my Canadian accent pretty well. <laughs> I think that helps when you're from a big city. Um, but then my wife is Jamaican. And so we spent, you know, the winters are cold in Canada, Shan. You, you maybe don't have to deal with that in Missouri. But um, they're cold enough here that we go to Jamaica for a few months in the winter. So right now I'm I'm back in Canada, but I was in Jamaica for the winter. You were very smart to marry a woman from Jamaica. I did pretty good for myself. Yeah, not complain on that front. But then I think she was pretty smart to marry you too. So uh, <laughs> I hope so. Yeah. So yeah, tell us a little bit about y'all's journey and how many years have you been married and how old are you? Yeah, so I'm 32 years old. Uh, my wife is 29. Uh, we've been married three and a half years, um, no kids yet, although we have one on the way. Um, so we're, yeah, so we're about to enter that season of life, which is super exciting. Congratulations, daddy. Thank you. Yeah, that is like totally surreal. And, uh, we'll get into my story obviously. And that's, um, it's kind of an amazing full circle moment for me to think about becoming a father. So it's pretty cool. Yeah. And so tell me, uh, about your passion what it is that you do and then back up and tell me why because there's always a personal story behind a professional passion yeah yeah for sure yeah especially in this space i think we all know that um so i am a, a coach i help professional young men in particular uh, quit pornography and overcome sexual misbehavioral addictions so i've been in this space for about four years um like formally and I was a pastor for 10 years prior to that. And so um, you, you know, started you, in ministry young then really young. Yeah. And there was a bit of overlap, like deep clean, um, which is the name of my organization was on the side while I was pastoring. And then eventually I, I made the leap full time about two years ago. But and, and say it know, again, deep clean, deep clean is the name of the program. Yeah. And that really is the it's our philosophy summed up in one word. So and we'll, we'll get into all of that. But okay. um yeah, but that's um, that's kind of uh, that's what I do. I'm pretty big on the media front as well. So speak on television pretty regularly. We have tons of channels ourselves, a podcast and social media and all that kind of stuff and trying to get the word out, you know, because this is such a taboo subject in general and all the more so in Christian circles. Um, yeah. I'm a fourth generation pastor, so just grew up with a very strong uh, ministry lineage and saw so many deficiencies in this area. And so just trying to be a voice of encouragement, of positivity around sexuality through a Christian lens, but also trying to be super practical and offer people useful guidance for them to actually get this stuff out of their lives permanently. Now, this is really interesting because usually when you think of pastors, your head does not go to sexuality because most pastors avoid that topic like the plague. 
and won't touch mm -hmm. it with a 10 foot pole. So how is it that you started in ministry, but yet saw this need and then and found the courage to speak out about it? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's kind of my nature. It's probably human nature, but like I can really identify, man, that's a deficiency. We need to do something about it. And I, again, sitting in the pews when my dad was a pastor at a young age, no criticism against my dad. Like my dad's one of my heroes still to this day, but it was just my nature. I was like, oh, why, why don't we do sermons about this? Or why don't we talk about that? And sexuality was only one of the topics. Like I used to make all of my superiors uncomfortable when I started ministry because I was like, why don't we talk about money? Why aren't we talking about sex? You know, I was like, <laughs> to me, it was just so obvious. You know, I, I couldn't let's, figure let's it out. Let's lift up the taboo stones. <laughs> See what's yeah. those. <laughs> yeah, for sure. But for me, it wasn't about tipping the sacred cows. It was just like, hey, these are things that are fundamental to the human life. Yes. We would probably be doing other people a favor by talking about it, you know, and offering biblical perspective. Because if you don't teach them, then somebody else will, right? They're just they're right. too vital to ignore. So that was always in my in my dna i guess you could say but i think with pornography like i had my own experience with it and so when i felt like god was calling me to maybe step out and start my own thing there were a bunch of different areas i felt like i could teach on and equip people in but this one kept coming back because i felt like i had a bit more authority in this space uh, i had my own 15-year struggle but then I also had like a, a more clinical academic background. I was a university researcher for a few years and um, and I had had a different angle to offer beyond just the this is what the Bible says. And not that there's anything wrong with that, but I just felt like I could add something a little bit different. So that's what ultimately kind of drove me to the work I'm doing now. Yeah. And with this younger generation, you have to come up with more than just because the Bible says so. Oh, so yeah. you, were, you were really smart to really weave that research piece into it. Uh, so I, I want to maybe have a two-part conversation. I want to know what you learned in the research. I want to know about the work that you do. But first, before we even get into that on a second episode, I want to know you. I want to hear your story because I feel as if, well, you just said it. You, you had a 15-year struggle with pornography. So at what age did you stumble onto porn? And I just want to say that some of the older people listening, they may found that startling that he's only 32 and had a 15 year struggle. But let's be real, people. This is the generation that was raised with the Internet in their home and it was readily available at the click of the mouse. How could they not find it before they're even 10 years old? So how yeah. old were you? OK, so let me contextualize this a little bit. So I mentioned I'm a fourth generation pastor, so I grew up in a pastor's home. My parents are both East Indian background, so that should give you an idea of just how easy it was to avoid topics like sex and sexuality uh, between kind of conservative Christianity and then the cultural elements. My parents sent us to Christian school, so we were, I don't know that we were sheltered, but we were definitely in a bit of a bubble. And I got exposed to pornography in the computer lab of my Christian school when I was 11 years old. Okay right around yeah. that age that of course there's curiosity there's opportunity and how interesting in the computer lab of your christian school yeah yeah it just goes to show you like i, I mean and this was true in 2001 when it happened for me it's true all the more so in today's day and age we're recording this in you know 2023 you can you can do all that you can to you know set your kids up for good decisions do your best to protect people but like in today's day and age it's not a question of if they get exposed to pornography, it's a question of when, when and, and so, how. Yep. Exactly. So I think, I think, you know, we have to switch our focus to really um, preparing people for that moment rather than praying it doesn't happen. And um, 
I know my parents were a lot more in that camp. And so when I got exposed, I didn't have anywhere to turn to. We had no conversations in the home about sex. I had no idea what to do with what I had just see, seen. And I was, um, I was pre-puberty. And, uh, and it, this is an interesting side note, but um, if we want to get deep into my story, it's probably worth mentioning. Yeah. I skipped a grade. So I was always a year younger than my peers. So they understood, like they could, I guess, process pornography a lot more than I could because they had already mm -hmm. started in puberty. And like, I still remember my classmate who told me to check out the page. Like he, I think he set me up. He presented it kind of innocently. But for me, I was uh, number one, like very protected. So I'd never seen anything like that before. But then number two, like just didn't have the wherewithal to even really understand what I was looking at. I, I remember feeling mostly disgusted by it, but obviously intrigued enough as well that I eventually returned back. But, sure. Um, and you're right. There's yeah. a huge developmental difference between an 11 year old and a 12 year old. Yeah. And, and isn't it interesting how when children find pornography, when they discover it, they can't keep it to themselves. There's always, always a moment where they want to feel as if they're the authority who gets to introduce their younger peers to it. And so I'm not surprised that it went down that way. Yeah. Yeah. Those, I mean, those stories are rampant, aren't they? Like it's typically, I mean, I know with our clients, it's either a friend or it's an uncle or it's a big right. older brother or something like that. So yeah. Exactly. Very typical. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. So how did, how did this impact you as you did enter puberty? And you said that you went back to it. Uh, is this something that you were able to do at home or did you keep doing it at school or on your phone or? Yeah, so that's a great question, actually. It was 2001, so this was still the time where you only had one personal computer for the entire home. Mm -hmm. And so when I went back, it was on the computer. My parents had the computer in the kitchen, or it was a high-traffic area. It's not like it was secluded. But, uh, you know, I mean, we always say this in response to internet filters and all that kind of stuff is if you really want it, you'll always find a way to get it. And I've heard that filters can easily be worked around by people who are – really intentional about wanting to do so. Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, uh, so for me, again, like there were there definitely some checks in place, but ultimately I went back to it. I would say in my high school years, I was watching porn regularly. Um, but it was really when I got into my college university days, that's where things really escalated. And it was no longer just something I did. It was something I needed. And mm -hmm. that's when it starts to become problematic. So I would plan my days around it. I, I would say that for me, pornography was my relief from coping with the cares of life and the stress of pursuing an, an education. I mean, I skipped a grade. I was highly academic, highly high achieving in that arena. But then secondly, it was kind of my reward, you know, because you're putting in a lot of work at school and you don't get a, a ton of return on your investment right away. So it was just something to look forward to. The uh, source the of, of your day. dopamine hits. Oh, 100%. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And what happens is like, that's always how the bond starts. Like, it's kind of just like, it's exciting. It's thrilling. You're sort of seeking the pleasure and whatever, but then it starts to become your source of comfort on a hard day. It starts to become like the only thing you have to look forward to in a 14 day or 14 hour schedule. Like it, it starts to really uh, solidify its roots in you. And that was kind of the point that I had reached when I was in the middle of my degree where I had really committed my life to Jesus. I knew I had to quit pornography and I realized I had no idea how. Wow. That had to have been a really overpowering feeling to have something in your life that you could not control no matter how much you wanted to. Yeah, it was for me, it was infuriating because I'm like a very, mm -hmm. I'm a high, strong type A kind of person. 
used to having things under control, relatively speaking. Sure. And, and I had other things like, so basically I studied the sciences, a uh, very atheistic environment. I was, like I said, I was a university researcher, got tons of research grants and stuff. And that's where the rubber hit the road for me from a faith standpoint. And so in that process, I, I committed my life to Jesus, became a Christian, and I knew what came with the territory. You know, I knew that I had to stop watching pornography. I knew that I had to drink responsibly or just not drink at all. And I had to clean up my language. And, you know, there are just a bunch of behavioral things that came with it from a lifestyle standpoint. And those, all, most of them were actually no problem. I could make the adjustment. And then when I tried to quit pornography, it was a totally different animal. And I had just mm -hmm. never encountered that before. Where it was like, wow, not only is this thing like way more in control of me than I am of it, but I have no idea what to do to change this dynamic. Like it was a very powerless place to be. And did anyone in your life know, had you shared your struggle with parents, sibling, colleagues, peers? So I guess in high school, there was a peer dynamic. Like there were at least a handful of times I can remember where like we were all hanging out and like somebody put pornography on the computer screen or that kind of thing. Um, so it wasn't necessarily discussed, but obviously there was like peer validation. But um, by the time I had graduated and was in university, no, I was totally silent about it. Yeah. So isolated under a lot of stress, the pressure to perform and make the grades and it had to feel like it was something that just like I remember one time at a workshop I asked a woman to draw a picture of the of the impact that pornography had had on her life and she drew a picture of a stick figure sitting at a desk and there was a chain connecting the computer to her ankles and to her wrists that she just mm. felt in total bondage is is that is that how you would describe the feeling I think that's a great depiction. Yeah, bondage. And um, it, it's a terrible feeling to feel helpless. Like I think if you're, if you have the chain strapped to your ankle and to the computer, but you have a key to the lock, it's not really that scary of a place to be. But that was that was the terrifying part for me was I had no key, you know, and I didn't even know where to find it. Okay, so how did you, how did you find your way out of that dark, dark place? How did you find the key? Yeah. So, I mean, I started researching uh, more, more, I was looking for like just resources, like what was out there. This was and, probably and how about, old were you in this particular season? Yeah. Good question. I think I was about 20 or 21 years old. Okay. So you hadn't met your wife yet. Correct. Yeah. Single man and looking for resources and they all kind of said the same thing, which is like, pray, put on an internet filter, find an accountability partner. Good luck kind of thing. Like it was, to me, it was very surface level advice, not a lot of depth. And um, that being said, I was willing to do whatever. So I did all those things. I found mm -hmm. a friend uh, that I felt comfortable to talk to about. Um, turns out he struggled too. So I started to get a little bit of support from him. Uh, we agreed to put internet filters on our devices. We were meeting regularly and I was upping my spiritual disciplines. Like I legitimately was just doing what I was told to do. Mm -hmm. And I kind of caught myself in, you know, clinically, they talk about the binge purge cycle. Oh, yeah. um, I, I like to call it the binge prey cycle. Um, that was sort of <laughs> my, my thing where I would go, you know, days, maybe even weeks without it. But eventually, like I would hit that breaking point. I would relapse. I would repent. I'd ask for God's forgiveness. I'd vow to never do it again. And it was kind of just a rinse and repeat thing for a really long time, Shannon. Sure. That was like probably the first two years where I was making an earnest effort. But it was, again, it was all I knew and it was all I was really seeing out there.
can you just touch on how it was impacting your self-esteem to have yeah. this secret that you couldn't share with very many people um, and to feel as if you were powerless to control something in your life and that it controlled you rather than you controlling it. H how did it make you feel about yourself? Yeah, I, I mean, a lot of shame for sure. Like shame is, is littered all over this story, you know, just from the religious aspects to the cultural dynamics. Um, it, it was there. And I, I, we often tell our clients that shame statements often mask themselves as should statements. Don't and shit all over yourself. <laughs> exactly. People uh -huh. shitting themselves. Yeah. Uh -huh. And so it was, it was totally that thing of like, man, I should not be struggling with this. I should have my stuff together. I should be free of this by now. It was a lot of statements like that. But underneath it was just sort of this thing of like, something must be terribly wrong with me. So that was, that was the bottom line of it. I've heard it said that the difference between guilt and shame is guilt is that I've done something wrong. Shame is that I am something wrong. And that's yeah. what I hear you describing is that 100%. Yeah. Enormous sense of shame. I've also heard shame described by Dr. Bill Struther at Wheaton College as a spiral. Um, mm. And that whenever people, you know, cross that line and do something that they feel as if they shouldn't have done that it will create a downward spiral. And because they let that shame make them feel so bad about themselves, they feel as if they have to have a hit of something to distract them from the overwhelming pain. And so it creates this downward spiral of shame, hit, shame, hit, shame, hit. Hmm. But that if you can internalize the reality of who we are in Christ and that what we do does not define who we are, that you can actually create an upward spiral of, okay, I did that, but that's not who I am. And I don't have to choose to keep doing that. And so how did you reverse your trajectory from a downward spiral over those two years of just continuing the same pattern over and over again, definition of insanity to mm -hmm. an upward spiral? I assume you found an upward spiral somehow, some way. Yeah, I did. And that's really cool the way you just framed that. I'm, I'm gonna have to remember that because we've been, um, yeah, that's, that's a huge proponent of what we do. So basically what I start to discover is that there are um, deeper inner dynamics that were contributing to my behavior. And I think I always kind of knew it, but it was something that I was not willing to really confront. So these would be things like traumas, uh, childhood wounding, dynamics when you're growing up, unforgiveness, bitterness, how you view yourself, how you view God, uh, processing feelings, coping with stress, you know, like these were all things that were there that I knew had some value, but I didn't connect them with my existing behavior. And that was sort of the breakthrough moment for me was just realizing there's a whole world that I have not explored. I've more or less neglected it thinking that it would create a mess and not realizing it was actually my solution out all along. And so that's when things began to really change. I, I love the way that you just put that. that. Really, until you face the things that have driven you to that place, I don't think that you ever can fully break free from that place. So I'm going to ask you a really personal question, Cynthia. And if it's too personal, it's okay. Just say so. We'll edit this part out. But I, I get the <laughs> feeling that you've probably shared this before. So I'm going to go there. Whenever I'm working with someone who feels totally addicted to porn, they are in bondage and they cannot break free. The thing that I always ask them to get more insight into their struggle 
is what are the words that you put into your search engine to find the type of porn that you're looking for? Because there's millions of types of porn out there and we are always looking for something in particular. And the way that I describe it to people is that if you make a list of all your greatest traumas, trials, and tragedies in life, and then you also made a list of your most unconventional fantasies, the ones that you would never tell your parents, pastor, or partner about, and it's probably the words that you put into your search engine, that those two lists are mirror images of each other because of how the brain has to compartmentalize pain long enough to make room for pleasure. So it has to be the mirror image story. So mm -hmm. is that too personal of a question to ask you? What were the words that you were putting into your search engine? And when did you make the connection between what you're currently looking for and what you had previously experienced in your life that you created pain or discomfort? Oh, man, uh, that's one of my favorite things you've ever said. And I remember you saying it to my clients as well, because uh, it's so true. And I think even in the Christian world, people get really afraid of like they have a temptation and they get really scared of it. And we're like, no, these are clues like lead into this stuff. Like there's so much intel sure. there, right? Don't, yes. don't turn your face from the information that will set you free. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, Jesus was tempted in every way. So we have nothing to worry about, you know, like yeah. there's there's good stuff there. So for me, I'll just be direct. You may, I don't know if you'll have to bleep this out, but MILF content was at the top of my my search stuff. Yeah. Um, and you're nodding your head. You're obviously not surprised. Uh, it's the, I've heard that the, the three top search engine words are threesome, lesbian and MILF and I'm not sure that they go in that order or not but for those of you who are listening who are going well I know what a threesome is and I know what lesbian is but what is a MILF I will just say that it's moms I'd like to and you can fill in the blank on the rest of that so basically it's the imagery of an older mature voluptuous woman with a lot of sexual energy to give is that how you would describe the yep. MILF image yeah, I think that's a good way to put it. And uh, the, the other keyword that's often floating in the top seven to top eight year over year is stepmom. So this kind of like mom related content is incredibly prevalent and for a good reason, you know, yes. because uh, exactly like you said, if you dig into the wounding and some of the traumas that people are experiencing at a young age, often the mother son dynamics are at play, at least from a male perspective. And so for me, I have uh, an amazing mom. She's very loving, very uh, caring. Um, I'm going to use a word that might be surprising, but uh, I would say that I dealt with a degree of neglect from her and not in a way that she didn't like feed me or clothe me, but emotional neglect. She didn't show affection in a way that I could really perceive it or understand it. Mm. And she's a bit of, of a more shy kind of reserved personality. So I... I realized this was just in my processing later on in my 20s. I just realized, man, I grew up always kind of with a sense of neglect from my mom mm. and I didn't know how to handle it. And then once I hit puberty, it was chasing girls. It was pornography and sexual misbehavior. So that was the connecting piece for me. And so oftentimes it's not that a parent doesn't love us or intends to neglect us. Sometimes it's a cultural thing. Sometimes mm -hmm. it's an upbringing thing. Like my dad didn't have parents who doted attention and affection on him. So he didn't know how. So do you feel like it was a busyness thing, a cultural thing of just a, it wasn't her wiring, her personality thing. At what age did you realize that wasn't about Sathya not being lovable? That was about my mom, my mom's love language, maybe not lining up with my own or, or whatever story you do. Yeah. How did you rectify that in your head? 
So it, that's exactly what it was. It was it was actually specifically Gary Chapman's love language thing that really brought this to light because I was like, oh, yeah, I'm a quality time and words of affirmation person. And if I had to guess, my mom probably shows love more through like acts of service and that kind of stuff. Right. So it was it was just a disconnect that way. So I was probably 20. I was actually I still remember the day that I walked out of the, the therapist's office um, after making this realization. And I think I was probably about 25 years old. And the big thing for me was number one, just being able to label the dynamic for what it was yes. super helpful, right? And doing it in like a non-critical way. I think that's one thing that like my generation doesn't always get right is, is sometimes we like boohoo our parents and it's like, oh, if my parents would have done this, my life would be perfect. And we all know that's right. not actually how it works. Yeah. Um, but then secondly, really being able to forgive her. And I think um, the order of those things is very important. I think people jump to forgiveness, but they don't actually take the time to label the hurt. And I think specific prayers get specific results. And mm -hmm. so when you can when you can really articulate the wounding, the pain, the cause of it, like the better you understand it, the more complete and impactful that forgiveness process is. And that's all it was. It was just reaching that place where in my heart of hearts, I could truly say, mom, you owe me nothing. Mm -hmm. Like I hold nothing against you. I understand why. And now like the, the ball's in my court, like it's not on you to change your ways or to apologize for what you did. Those things maybe could happen. And if they do, they're bonuses. But like, now I understand what's going on. I'm going to find healthier ways to get some of these needs met. And I'm going to do, you know, the deeper healing process that's necessary for me to be able to manage these areas of my life. Yes. I've heard it said that you can blame your parents until you're 18. After that, <laughs> it's all on you, but yeah. I'd love to hear how you were willing to face the pain so that you could process the pain. Cause I don't think that pain gets healed when we just sweep it under the rug mm -hmm. and try to pretend like it wasn't there. And so what a huge step of maturity for you and interesting that it happened at 25 years old, you said, yeah, because that is the age that especially the male brain reaches its full potential of metacognition, the ability True. to think about how you think to be able to really process, sure, another person's part in your pain, but also your contribution to the pain, because sometimes we tell ourselves stories that do not help the storyline at all, that make us feel even worse about it. And mm. so I love that you have figured out that there's a mom wound there, that there's a love language discrepancy there, uh, but that on a basic level, I mean, she raised a pretty good guy. Yeah. And was a pastor's wife and educated you and did the did far more than some moms on the planet, you'd have to say. So did your feelings toward your mom and second part of the question, your feelings toward yourself, did those feelings evolve after you really did the soul work of recognizing where this where this craving in you comes from? Yeah, I mean, that was the really cool part of this was I felt like I had a newfound appreciation and actually longing for a relationship with my mom. Um, and so that that's been a, a neat byproduct of all this. We've had some difficult conversations along the way, as you can imagine, but like just a much deeper level of care for one another. You know, we go out on lunch dates every once in a while now, um, like our relationship really has improved a lot. And that's a far cry from where things were in my earlier stages of life. So on that front, yes, absolutely. Yes. For me personally, the, the thing that I still remember, the reason I remember stepping out of the therapist's office, or I forget if it was, I forget the exact context, but I remember it was when I had kind of connected these dots and, and done some processing, 
it was the first time that I felt like I was in control of my sexuality. Wow. Like, and it was, I mean, it wasn't, I don't want to say it was instantaneous, but I remember stepping out being like, oh, this is different. Like you could tell right away. That's monumental. Yeah. So that was, that was like, that was where it was like, oh, I actually feel empowered to do something about this again. I'm not just like, I'm not going to wake up tomorrow and pray that like the temptations are at a minimal and that I make it through. I, I don't have to like go and find the next answer or the next solution or the next coach or whatever. Although again, those things would all be great. But there was just a calmness of like, oh, I think I'm in control and I think I can figure this thing out. It's going to be okay. And that you're no longer a victim of it that you're yes. a victor. It sounds as if you felt like you had victory. Yes. So let me tell you why I love hearing this on this particular, in this particular season of your life, knowing that you've been married for several years now, three over three years now, and knowing that you're about to become a dad yourself mm -hmm. and that you've learned these things about how important it is to speak your partner's love language, to speak I think that you know that there's uh, the whole concept of understanding your kids' love language. And so just recognizing that there was a discrepancy between your mom's love language and your love language, I can only imagine what kind of great dad you're going to be and the clues that you're going to be looking for as that child grows up of just making sure that you try to speak their language, not just your own. So just the freedom that you have found and the passion that you've cultivated in your own life based on your own experiences, your humility and your courage to share that story and that journey with others. Because it's one thing for me to explain the dynamic to people. It's another thing for them to hear mm. someone's personal journey with applying those principles. So I can't thank you enough for entrusting my audience with your story today, Cynthia, but we are not done. We are going to go deeper into some of the things that Cynthia learned in his years of research and forming his ministry and some of the experiences that he's had in ministering to other people on this deep, 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 deep level that most churches and pastors are afraid to, that this is just territory where angels fear to tread as well as <laughs> most human beings on the planet. So again, it's all about courage. I, we applaud your courage, Cynthia. Thank you for sharing your personal story and we look forward to the next conversation. Yeah, well, it's, it's been a real pleasure and I'm glad we kind of got into the depths of the story. And the one thing I'll also just mention, Shannon, is um, so 25 is when I had this like pretty big breakthrough. 26 was when I had my last relapse. And so, um, so it was, it was really, it was a huge turning point and I'm excited to kind of dig into some of the other things as well in the next episode, but I thought that'd be worth mentioning, um, just to kind of set things up. Yeah. And I'll also give a little tease that, that expression, his last relapse, you're also going to learn about the amazing book that Cynthia has written. So be sure and tune in next time. We thank you for tuning in to another episode of Sexual Confidence on Tap with Shannon Etheridge and friends. We love you for listening. And we thank you for tapping on us. <laughs>